You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Taking down bot farms, Russia says the U.S. is the aggressor in cyberspace. Influence operations arriving at Mach 10. The call is coming from inside the house. Cyber incidents affect aviation services. CISA posts ICS control system advisories. I welcome Tim Eads from the Cyber Mentor Fund. Our guest is Alex Holland from HP Wolf Security, describing a new wave of attacks. And sanctions are also biting Russian cyber gangs. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. Bleeping Computer reports that Ukrainian authorities have taken down five bot farms that were operating tens of thousands of inauthentic social media accounts. The messaging was coordinated and consistent with disinformation about the progress of the war aimed at discouraging further Ukrainian resistance. The items seized in the raids included 100 sets of GSM gateways, 10,000 SIM cards for various mobile operators to disguise the fraudulent activity, and laptops and computers used for controlling and coordinating the bots. Reuters, citing stories in Russian official media, reports that Kremlin officials are pointing with concern at cyber attacks they say the U.S. is conducting against Russia. The cyber attacks are said to amount to hundreds of thousands every day. Kremlin representatives said the sources of attacks will be identified and the attackers will inevitably be held accountable for their actions in accordance with the law. Moscow appears to view Ukraine's semi-official part-hacktivist, part-volunteer, and part-contractor IT army as an American cat's paw. Have you heard about those hypersonic missiles Russia's been firing in Ukraine? They're very fast, and no, in Ukraine they don't seem to really matter much to the battlefield. You might wonder what this has to do with cyber. After all, why are we interested in hypersonic weapons? Well, they're being deployed for their influence value, for mind share, and not target destruction, which makes them first cousin to disinformation. Russian sources have said, and Western sources confirmed, that Russia has been using hypersonic missiles against Ukraine. Defense One has an account of the missile's use, which the publication sees as a gesture intended to influence and intimidate. The article quotes the head of U.S. European Command, U.S. Air Force General Todd Walters, is saying, I think it was to demonstrate the capability and attempt to put fears in the hearts of the enemy, and I don't think they were successful. The air-launched Kinzhal, or Dagger, missiles are said to have been used against a Ukrainian ammunition storage site. Hypersonic missiles are extremely fast, moving at Mach 5 or more, and are also designed to be highly maneuverable. Russia claims the Kinzhal is capable of Mach 10, or just over 7,600 miles per hour. Hypersonic missiles are built for use against well-defended targets, like warships armed with point-missile defense systems. So why use them against big, stationary, poorly defended targets like the ones said to have been struck in Ukraine? There's no real tactical reason. 
You might want a missile that could boogaloo like the Kinzhal if you were up against, say, an aircraft carrier battle group. But if you're striking ammunition bunkers or apartment buildings, schools, hospitals, theaters, and so on, a Kinzhal is more than 7,000 miles per hour of excess force. General Walters probably has it right. This is propaganda of the deed, not fire support. It's an information op that tries to persuade through kinetic effect. It also represents the expenditure of some pricey ordnance. You may not be interested in the hypersonic missiles, Moscow might say, but the hypersonic missiles are interested in you. Some Verizon customers have been receiving spam texts that include a link to a Russian television provider. Free message, the spam begins. Your bill is paid for March. Thanks, here's a little gift for you. And the fishhook is a shortened URL that directs those who click to content provided by Russia's One TV, a channel whose majority owner is the Russian state. The spam is interesting in that it seems to come from the recipient's own number. Verizon says, according to The Verge, that bad actors are responsible and that it's cooperating with law enforcement investigation. Why it's happening is unclear. It could be an information operation, or it could just be some hackers in it for the lulls. Russia's aviation authority, Rosaviatsia, is reported to have lost some 65 terabytes of data in an incident it sustained this week, Mentor Pilot reports. Business systems and records, including aircraft registration records, are said to have been affected. It's not clear exactly what the incident was or whether it was a cyber attack or an accident. Some sources in Russia are connecting the incident to IT problems induced by a recent change in agency leadership. Another aviation target was hit, this one in the U.S. state of Connecticut. Bradley International Airport, which serves Hartford, was affected by a distributed denial-of-service attack against its public website. In neither the Russian nor the U.S. incident was safety of flight at risk. CISA yesterday released six industrial control system advisories. And finally, Digital Shadows has been keeping an eye on cyber gangs' chatter in the dark web, and the word on that particular street is that the hoods are taking a financial bath as the ruble collapses under sanctions. With transfers of money blocked and with extensive restrictions on banking in place, criminals are finding it difficult to cash out cryptocurrencies and are having trouble getting hard currency. Digital Shadows describes the underworld's difficulty deciding what to do. They said, One user advised simply leaving the money where it was for six months if the questioner did not need to use it urgently for other purposes. A different user mocked this suggestion, writing, I hope you were joking about half a year. After half a year, your rubles will only be good for lighting a fire, and they will not be good for anything else. The user also questioned whether the Russian state could be trusted to allow the purchase of dollars after six months and worried that many Russian banks would go bankrupt. Other forum members considered the advisability of buying gold, although some noted that this method would incur losses due to the high trade fees and storage costs and would involve an expensive examination during the transaction process. InfoSecurity magazine points out two interesting results of Digital Shadows' investigation. First, carters, as one might expect, are particularly affected. And second, spare a thought for your poor local criminal. Maybe. 
It turns out a lot of them are just moonlighting, that they all hold legit jobs in the straight world that they rely on to put food on the table. Those legitimate businesses are also being affected by sanctions, and they're feeling the pinch, too. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. HP Wolf Security recently released their latest quarterly Threat Insights report, which highlighted shifting tactics they've been tracking of attackers using features in Microsoft Excel to bypass detection. Alex Holland is a malware analyst with HP. We saw a near six-fold increase in the volume of Microsoft Excel add-in files being used to deliver malware. And we saw these files being used to deliver seven families of malware, everything from kind of crimeware, including Drydex and ISD, all the way down to commodity remote access trojans. And why we think this is significant is because it's part of a wider trend of attackers responding to Microsoft blocking features in Microsoft Office that have historically been abused by attackers to deliver malware. So is this uh, in response to Microsoft, you know, making macros disabled by default? You're right on the money, yes. I'd say that this started in October last year, where Microsoft announced that they would be disabling Excel 4.0 macros by default by the end of 2021, uh, which is an older macro technology that was first introduced in 1992. So it's been around for a long while. This trend has continued with the announcement last month of Microsoft's plan to block VBA macros in documents that have originated from the web from April this year onwards. So we think this surge in Excel add-in malware is evidence of attackers 
responding essentially to the slow death of malicious macros uh, by experimenting with different techniques to deliver malware that aren't reliant on these technologies which are quickly being blocked. For folks who aren't familiar with uh, exactly what Microsoft Excel add-in files are, can you explain to us how they work? I describe them as uh, macros on steroids. So essentially what they allow you to do is to, uh, for developers, to write high-performance functions that can extend the functionality of Excel uh, way beyond uh, what other macro languages, high-level macro languages can let you do. For example, uh, VBA. For instance, Excel add-ins can support things like multi-threading, which uh, VBA cannot Is there any sense for how effective this pivot has been for the threat actors? In other words, you know, moving to these add-in files, is is their ability comparable to what they had when macros were enabled, or or is this really uh, uh, hamstring them? I would say that in the short term, when we're analyzing threats, we, we split threats into two kind of attributes. The first is intent, by which we mean um, an attacker's desire and expectation for an attack to succeed. And the second attribute is capability. And we're talking about knowledge and their resources to actually conduct an attack and execute it. And so this, this change, we think, affects their ability, their knowledge, their know-how uh, in order to execute attacks uh, properly. This is only a short-term change. And in fact, we saw on underground forums tools and services advertising XLL, um, XL add-in malware uh, that delivers and automates uh, delivery of malware. So people are already coming up with uh, new tooling to get around uh, macros being disabled. That's Alex Holland from HP Wolf Security. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to welcome to the show Tim Eads. He is the CEO at VArmor and co-founder of the Cyber Mentor Fund, uh, Tim, it is great to welcome you to the CyberWire. Um, I want to start off uh, introducing you to our audience. Can you give us a, a quick little version of your bio? Yeah, sure. Absolutely wonderful to be here, Dave. Um, love CyberWire. Just absolutely awesome read for everybody and listen. Everybody should get this every day, but um, certainly I do. So um, yeah, I'm the CEO of Yama, serial entrepreneur. This is my third company I'm, I'm running. I'm on the board of a few others. 
and just you know, love to be in the cybersecurity world because I think it's a mission that, that I really believe in, that to, to try and secure the country, try and secure the enterprises. And it's a mission that never goes away, but it's one that you can always aspire to do better in. And then I'm also the co-founder, very fortunate to be the co-founder of a thing called Cyber Mentor Fund, which is a very early seed and Series A venture capital fund where we partner with the VCs, but we really partner hardcore with the entrepreneurs um, as they come up with these crazy ideas and you know they want to go to the moon. And our job is to help them, give them a better chance of success uh, by, by sharing wisdom and partnering with them to whether it comes from architecture to fundraising to understand financials, you know, to understanding the climate and even getting feedback from the early adopter customers. So two parts of my life, but with the same mission, basically secure the enterprise and secure the country. Well, let's dig into some of the details about the Cyber Mentor Fund. I mean, first of all, fundamentally, what differentiates a, a mentorship fund from some of the other avenues of funding that companies might have available to them? Yeah, so the Cyber Mentor Fund really does go early. I mean, it's two guys and an idea and where they turn around like, and they look, hey, I think I can do this. What do you think? Is this ever going to happen? On occasions, you know, we will even go interview customers and come back with architectural diagrams with them. In, in occasion, literally set up the URL by the, by the, help the lawyers set up the, 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 uh, the LLC. We partnered with some great law firms on that, like Cooley. And from that, they start to shape the, literally the company. And, you know, we have a little uh, uh, marketing services arm that helps them launch the company. So it's all the way of the early stuff. And so, and because we're not the largest check, we partner with wonderful people like Jay Leak uh, at Sin Ventures. We partner with Matt Biggie at Crosslink. We partner with Charles Beeler. All the early stage guys, we kind of partner with them. And young early stage startups are like, um, Kids, right? When they when they're young, they need you all the time and everything else. But when they get older, they only call you if they've crashed their car, they need money, or they're going through a divorce or something. <laughs> so early on, you can do this real mentorship. But then they they grow up and and become a wonderful company. But those early formative stages where we specialize, just because that's where they need the most help. And I think from there, that's what we do really, really well. And what attracts you to that particular stage of, of a company's development? I'm attracted by it, and I know the team at um, Cyber Mentor Fund is attracted by it, is because the sense of accomplishment and the the curiosity that you get by some of these entrepreneurs is amazing. There's a great one with Sin Saber, right, where Yuri and, and Ron come to us and like, hey, I think I could do this. And we helped them, we guided them, you know, they're going to get their first few customers at the moment, and now they got funded by the venture community and, you know, again, and off they're running. But your ability... To, the sense of accomplishment and the sense of shaping and partnership is is great. It's not for everyone because, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you, you really have to lean in. They have to be curious. They have to be kind. They have to be really good at communicating. And so I think Cyber Mental Fund's done 28 investments over the last three years at four exits. Uh, and just about everything is marked up because we come in so early. I suspect you, you find yourself being a bit of a matchmaker as well, yes? A matchmaker across the board, um, a matchmaker with some of the early stage employees, because we help them with that, matchmaker with the law firms that they need to choose, which is really important. Sometimes some financial, um, some outsourced financial help on, on doing that, all the way through to you know the, the venture guys that we partner with, which has been really, really rewarding to see how that works. And then, you know, um, like I said, we've sold four 
I've been in the cybersecurity industry a very long time now, multiple decades. And so we tend to know the CEOs of all the large companies, whether it's Gary Steele, who's now over at Proofpoint, or you know, Peter Bauer at Mimecast or wherever it is. You know, and so we can if if the if there is an exit on the horizon or a decision on the horizon, our ability to actually have a conversation with the potential acquirer and do it in a non crazy way, just do it in a very kind way. Say, hey, this this company is gonna to look to exit. Is this something that you should be looking towards? All right. Well, Tim Eads, thanks so much for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Balecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.